1: Ever since the Industrial Revolution, humans have emitted massive amounts of extra carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. All of our transportation, heat, gadgets and devices, along with deforestation and development, they've all contributed to this dramatic rise in greenhouse gas emissions. And all of those heat-trapping gases, they're warming the planet. This past July marked the Earth's warmest month ever recorded. As we reported in parts one and two of our series Zero Carbon Future, governments, companies and investors have stepped up efforts to halt these emissions. They've increased output of renewable energy and found more effective ways to store clean energy on the grid. Plus, the Earth does have its own way of drawing down some of these greenhouse gases, Oceans, rocks, wetlands, plants and forests can all soak up carbon dioxide.
2: When we talk about uh, carbon capture, many people think, oh, wow, these are all fancy technologies. But no.
1: Jan Minx is head of a research group for applied sustainability based in Germany.
2: These are things that, you know, nature has been doing for a long time. That's actually the nice thing about nature. So plants are capturing carbon for us. And that is something that we can use.
1: But natural methods of carbon capture, while needed, are not enough to rein in greenhouse gas emissions. The world's CO2 levels are out of balance. So since the 1970s, scientists have been trying to create mechanical devices that can suck up carbon dioxide. Most of those efforts have focused on industry, filtering carbon emissions from smokestacks and other polluters. Many researchers thought the idea of trying to capture carbon dioxide from the air was a little too out there. And so it's been slow to take off, but that's changing.
2: It's not the biggest part of the solution, but it's an important part that has not been talked about enough. And and I think that needs to change because it's a crucial part of the solution.
1: From The Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today on the show, part three of our series, Zero Carbon Future. New advances in carbon capture and storage. We explain how it's done, why there isn't more of it, and the technology's prospects for the future.
3: This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.
1: There are a couple of tested ways to mechanically remove carbon dioxide. It can be pulled out of emissions from energy-intensive industries that produce a lot of pollution, or carbon can be removed directly out of the air. Together, these methods took 40 million metric tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere last year, according to the International Energy Agency. But that's not remotely close to the 1.6 billion metric tons the IEA estimates the world needs to remove in order to meet many nations' emissions targets. It's a huge divide, one that climate researchers and nations are hoping to close. Part of that will entail opening more facilities that directly remove carbon from the air. A new one, the biggest in existence so far, just opened in September in Iceland. A Swiss-based company, Climeworks, built the plant called Orca. The facility doesn't take up a lot of space. It's tucked into a couple of treeless, emerald-tipped hills outside of Reykjavik.
4: So when you're driving to the Orca plant, then you're in the Icelandic landscape. So there's a a lot of green flats where, where our plant is located.
1: That's Daniel Egger. He's the chief commercial officer of Climeworks.
4: And on the right side, you see a stack of, of greenish containers where the collectors are located. At the back of these containers, you see big fans drawing the air through these containers.
1: There are eight of these boxes, 40 feet long, the size of standard shipping containers, double-stacked next to a building that kind of resembles an aluminum-sided hangar or garage that holds a processing unit. Egger says inside the boxes are special filters that collect the CO2 out of the passing air.
4: So when we draw ambient air through these uh, collectors, the CO2 sticks basically on the surface of this filter material. And by doing that, it is separated from the air.
1: And this takes more than just a foam filter like you'd see in an air purifier to get the CO2 out. In this facility, the sponge-like collectors or filters are coated with a solvent called an amine. It's a special ingredient that's able to separate CO2 from the air. Amines are organic chemicals that contain nitrogen derived from ammonia, and they react with carbon dioxide. Researchers say they're not new. They've been used for decades now. Joan Brennicki is a chaired professor in the Maketa Department of Chemical Engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. She says amines are what we use to clean the air on submarines.
0: You know, the people on the submarine are breathing out carbon dioxide, so the concentration of CO2 in the air in the submarine
1: increases. And that's not good, of course. CO2 accumulation is toxic and can be deadly. So these organic molecules, the amines, are in a watery solution that acts like a filter, and they interact with the CO2 in the air.
0: And so then you have this uh, amine solution that's reacted with CO2. And then what you can do is you can either increase the temperature or reduce the pressure, and that will cause the CO2 to unreact from the amine.
1: The unreaction separates the CO2 from the watery or aqueous filter with the amine, and isolates it. So now you've taken the CO2 out of the air and you can get rid of it. In submarines, the disposal is pretty easy.
0: In their case, then they can just, you know, put it out outside, put it out in, into the, the ocean. Uh, but in the case of CO2 capture technologies, what we're interested in doing is then taking that CO2 that's been released from the aqueous amine and putting it into geological sequestration uh, or other purposes.
1: Daniel Egger at Climeworks says that's what happens to the CO2 at the Orca plant.
4: And uh, when the filter material is saturated, we can release the CO2 again from the filter by heating it up and then we can uh, collect the highly concentrated CO2 and then uh, use it for further purposes like storage or uh, making fuels or sending it to greenhouses or whatever.
1: At the Iceland facility, the CO2 storage is handled by another company, CarbFix. It mixes the CO2 with water and injects it underground, where the company says it turns into rock within just a few years. Iceland has a kind of rock, basalt rock, that interacts with CO2 and makes the carbon storage more secure. Climeworks says the ORCA facility is able to remove 4,000 metric tons of CO2 from the atmosphere each year, which is a lot. But it's just a fraction of what the International Energy Agency says we're going to need to remove to keep temperatures from rising to non-acceptable heights. And all this removal is not going to be cheap. Each metric ton of sequestered CO2 costs Climeworks about $600 to $800. The goal is to get those costs down to about $200 per metric ton by 2030 and $100 per metric ton long-term. The Clean Air Task Force, an environmental group that advocates for greenhouse gas emissions limits, says there are about two dozen carbon capture plants operating worldwide, with another 130 being planned. But Liebeck, the international director of the group's carbon capture program, says the world needs many, many more, combined with all the other methods for controlling greenhouse gas emissions to achieve the zero carbon by 2050 goals that many nations have set. What's really needed is to have policy that reduces the cost of these technologies, that shortens deployment timelines. If you look at most of the projects today from concept, To operation, it can take a decade. That's time we don't have. But scaling up is difficult, in part because the technology requires a lot of energy. The Orca plant just started operations a little over a month ago. So Climeworks says the facility's precise energy consumption information will be clearer in a few months. But part of the reason Climeworks chose Iceland for this plant is that it has access to the volcanic island's cheap, clean geothermal energy. If it didn't use renewable energy, it would likely be unsustainable. And while the Climeworks Amine technology is not new, Egger says the company has made some new design adjustments to the Orca plant, so it uses fewer raw materials and costs less than earlier configurations.
4: With the new collector design, we just need about 50% of the steel, which we have been used before. And that we can also use it in a, in a more optimized way because of the inlet of the collectors was optimized that we can bring in more air, meaning we have a bigger opening uh, area for the collectors. I mean, we need to make it more efficient. And we also need to build more plant, as simple as that. So we are at the beginning of a new industry and we need to make it more more efficient. We need to make the plants bigger. So uh, our plans are to increase the plant size by a factor of 10 every three years.
1: But Professor Brennicki at UT Austin questions whether this kind of facility, like the one in Iceland, will ever become scalable. She says overall, removing CO2 directly from the air takes too much energy and it's too expensive.
0: Direct air capture is really, really hard. And so, you know, everybody's like, oh, let's do direct air capture. We will do every other source first before we start trying to remove something that's present at 400 parts per million.
1: We hear that figure a lot, 400 parts per million, It's the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere, and it's pretty uniform around the world no matter where you go. So pulling it out is kind of like the old needle in a haystack analogy.
0: I mean, if you do a simple calculation on the minimum energy required to remove a carbon dioxide molecule from air compared to removing it from, you know, a power plant, it's roughly three times more energy per molecule to remove it from air.
1: Brennicki says carbon capture makes more sense at industrial plants, steel and cement facilities, where high concentrations of carbon dioxide are being created as part of the process. She says filters on the smokestacks of these industries can clean polluted gases before they escape into the air carbon capture plants of the future will likely operate differently than the ones we have today, but it's hard to say what technologies these facilities will use because they're still being developed. Some teams are working on new systems to remove carbon emissions. Brunicke's lab works with ionic liquids, organic salts that don't have to be heated up, so therefore take less energy. Another team at MIT is testing out battery technologies they say can remove CO2 at any concentration. Jan Minx heads up the Applied Sustainability Science Working Group at the Mercator Research Institute on Global Commons and Climate Change based in Berlin, Germany. He says nations are way behind on perfecting carbon capture.
2: There is really what I would call an innovation gap. you know, started to think far too late about um, carbon removal technologies. And we really need to appreciate that uh, processes of innovation take a long time.
1: That's happened with other clean energy technologies, too. Consider that the first solar cells, the main component of the panels that make solar energy, were created from selenium in the 1800s. It took until the 1950s before the first photovoltaic cells were commercially available. From there, it took another 60 years until solar photovoltaic technology was cost-competitive in the power sector. But Mink says we don't have the next 60 years to perfect CO2 removal technology. Up next, how the carbon capture industry can speed up that timeline, close the innovation gap, and sidestep some pitfalls.
0: AI may be the most important new computer technology ever, but AI needs a lot of processing speed, and that gets expensive fast. Upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash WallStreet. oracle.com WallStreet.
1: The Climeworks plant in Iceland is getting a lot of attention from businesses, especially those that want to offset their fossil fuel use by buying carbon credits. Climeworks says it has about 50 corporate customers, including big name firms like Microsoft, Shopify, and Stripe. I asked my colleague, Rochelle Toplensky, a columnist who frequently writes about climate change, What it's going to take to increase the amount of carbon capture facilities we see up and running. It's more about whether
3: they can make money doing it or not. And that's really what has changed. So carbon capture is set to be a big business by a lot of forecasts. You know, a lot of companies have agreed to cut their net emissions to zero, as have governments. So they're putting in emission targets in place. And so these companies will look to be buying offsets. That represents a big market for these companies to then start making some money.
1: But I would imagine that it gets complicated when a fossil fuel company decides to utilize carbon capture because wouldn't that technically allow them to continue to emit carbon dioxide while at the same time spending money and getting credit for capturing it? Yeah, it can.
3: And, and I think that's one of the really fundamental concerns that comes around from carbon reduction techniques and carbon capture and storage is that a lot of people are concerned that oil and gas companies or, or just companies in general actually We'll use these sort of methods to say, okay, well, we don't need to actually worry about cleaning up our processes then.
1: And given all of these challenges and limitations, I'm wondering, do you still get the sense that companies will continue to experiment with carbon capture and sequestration, maybe even expand on it?
3: Yeah, it's a crucial part of the world getting to net zero, both governments and companies. But one of the really important things in order to be able to get the investment that we need to develop and to build out the scaled carbon removal technologies is that we need to be able to trust those credits, that they're real. There's a real worry about greenwashing, you know. So is the project actually real? Is it really removing additional CO2? It's not double counting something. Otherwise, they take a risk that they could be susceptible to accusations of greenwashing.
1: Rochelle, you mentioned that the companies need to make money with carbon capture. And, you know, Climeworks told us it has 9,000 individual clients buying carbon capture credits. And there's a lot of conversation about being able to sell carbon credits on the free market. In the U.S., though, we don't have a unified national carbon market, Right. Where are we right now globally on this?
3: You're right. In the U.S., there is no national market. But there are a few states that have clubbed together to create regulated carbon pricing. And there are also some unregulated markets where carbon credits are traded. Looking globally, about 45 nations have some sort of carbon price, according to the World Bank. Europe has a pretty well-established one um, that it's looking to expand, And China also was working with the EU to design their own, and this year launched a national scheme that covers their power sector. There's lots of talk and ambition about creating a global carbon price or a global carbon market, but to be honest, I'm a little bit skeptical. There are just so many differences between countries. I have come across one interesting idea that seems like it could prompt a more unified carbon price. It's called a carbon border tax. Europe proposed one this summer that would apply to a small number of highly polluting products. So things like fertilizers, steel and cement. So how it works, say a company makes steel in a country without a carbon tax. If they want to sell that into the EU, they would have to pay a fee when they import it into the EU. And the fee is essentially like the equivalent of an EU carbon credit to cover the emissions that were generated when the steel was made. If instead the steel came from somewhere that had an equivalent carbon price, there would be no charge at the border. For now, the carbon border tax is only a proposal, but it's already prompting other countries to think about creating their own carbon tax.
1: So what impact would setting a market price have on these carbon capture businesses and new innovations for this technology? I imagine it would help.
3: Charging for carbon would really help boost the carbon capture business and their technical innovation. Essentially, what is a cost for the polluter becomes revenue for those companies that are capturing the carbon. So it helps them make money from their existing facilities and it also gives them funds to build new facilities and to really push and fund their innovation and R&D going forward.
1: Closing the so-called innovation gap and creating state-of-the-art carbon capture facilities will likely add to the strategy toolbox that helps nations begin to reverse rising temperatures and achieve their goals for a zero carbon future. But the earth and what's built on it is already reacting to a new normal. Roads are buckling from the heat. Coastlines are being remapped from sea level rise. Fires are inching closer to town centers and permafrost is thawing. Next time on our Zero Carbon Future series, we consider how humans will adapt to an already changed world. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. Lee Camping-Carter is deputy editor of The Future of Everything. Maddie Bender is our fact checker. Sarah Gibbel laska is our sound designer. Thanks to Heard on the Street columnist Rochelle Toplensky for her reporting. Our producers are Caitlin Nicholas and Emily Schwing. Kateri Yoakum is the Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Janet Babin. Thanks for listening.